Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Leviticus. If you're not sure where that is, it's the third book in the Bible. So uh, Leviticus, not too hard to find. I once mentioned a number of years ago that I hope before I pass from this life or in my life as a pastor that I would be able to preach a series through every book in the Bible. And one sweet lady said to me, let me know when you're going to do Leviticus because I'm going to be gone that time. <laughs> well, I can understand her concern. Of, of all the books in the Bible, there's probably none that is more boring to most of us than the book of Leviticus. It's just filled with things that really don't have pertinent uh, issues for us. Uh, it's full of sacrifices and washings and purity laws and rituals and laws and rules about all sorts of things that many of them don't pertain to us at all. And yet, uh, yet it's in the scriptures. Little known to, uh, to many people is how influential the book of Leviticus really is uh, in our churches, in the Christian community, and even in America. For example, did you know that on our Liberty Bell, it gets its name, Liberty Bell gets its name from Leviticus 2510. Probably few people know that. This is a perfect time to mention that. Fourth of July, Independence Day, Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell says this, on the bell itself, proclaim liberty, Leviticus 2510. I doubt that many Americans even know that. Well, over one half of all the occurrences of the word unclean is found in Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 is Jesus' favorite verse of the Old Testament. It goes like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, as described in Leviticus, uh, it, it, it's described in Hebrews, has its foundation in Leviticus. As we start our series uh, next Sunday on Hebrews, it's the foundation. That's why we're doing this passage of Scripture today, why we're doing this book. It's important to understand the, the underpinnings of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand the Old Testament priesthood to do that. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross would be virtually incomprehensible without the understanding of the symbolism and the rituals of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that is found largely in the book of Leviticus. And the Day of Atonement, I just mentioned a while ago, perfectly symbolizes uh, all that Christ has done to atone for our sin and to win, win us for Him at Calvary. The people of Israel now, and historically, they receive the instructions found in Leviticus while they're still camped outside of Mount Sinai. Now remember at Mount Sinai is when they received the Ten Commandments. So they haven't gone too far from Egypt yet. They've crossed the Red Sea. They, they marched to Mount Sinai. Moses is receiving the laws, the Ten Commandments. And while they're still there, before they ever move over to, into the wilderness, over towards uh, Canaan land, uh, God gives them the book of Leviticus and all the details that are here, very early in the life of the people of the nation of Israel. The message of Leviticus could be wrapped up in three words and three topics. Number one, the holiness of God. We just sang that great old song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Fits perfectly with what we're doing today. The holiness of God. No book in the Bible showcases the holiness of God any better than the book of Leviticus. Secondly, the sinfulness of humanity. Uh, the, the, the fact that we need sacrifices and why we need sacrifices. Why we needed to cross the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. It found in Leviticus. And also the means by which we can approach God. What, why is it or how is it that a, a sinful people such as ourselves can even approach a holy God such as Him? It's only possible because of the means that God gives us to do so. 
So if you're listening at all this morning, you just recognize the gospel in the book of Leviticus. The gospel traced all the way through the Bible from beginning to end is the same. There's a holy God beyond anything we can imagine. There is a sinful humanity that cannot approach a holy God because of the holiness of himself and the sinfulness of ourself. And there is a means by which God has, has given us by which we sinful people can be right with the holy God. That's the theme of the Bible. That's the theme of the book of Leviticus. So it's not that far away from where we are. Let's go through those three themes together. First of all, the holiness of God. Go to chapter 11 and verses 44 to 45. Numerous times in the book of Leviticus we find this particular phrase. Looking at verse 44 of chapter 11. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself therefore and be holy for I am holy. There's your phrase. Be holy for I am holy. Drop down to verse 45. And he says thus at the very end. Thus you shall be holy for I am holy. So that is mentioned numerous times going throughout the book. And see there's direct statements then about the holiness of God. And the call for us to be holy as well. As we work through the, through the book, which we're not only going to do in a thumbnail here, is we, we see an, an outline. If you want an outline of the book of Leviticus, I'll give that to you very quickly. The first seven chapters are about sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices. We'll look back at some of those in a moment. The next uh, three chapters, chapters 8 through 10, is about the priesthood. There had to be a priesthood set up in order that the people could approach God through the priesthood and through what they did. And then chapters 11 through 15 is the purity laws, uh, dealing with all, everything from what they could eat and what they couldn't eat to, to uh, rituals and purification for their children, for skin diseases, for molds uh, in their houses. Um, so some of you that got some rain this last week might want to know some of these rituals <laughs> later on down the line as you look at your houses. Um, and then chapters 18 to 27, as it closes down, is often called the, the holiness code. And there we have numerous instructions on how the people were to live, not like the pagans around them, the land they were going into, but to live very differently from them. And he gives them the, the reason for that in chapter 19, verse 2, is because I am holy. I am holy. Therefore, here, this is how you are to live. Really, the book uh, can hardly be understood then apart from the foundational promise that God is a holy God. Tozer reminds us in his great book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, we're all used to the opening lines of that book, but on page 11 he said something else that's significant. He says that the, the essence of idolatry is the entertainments of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. I'm going to say that again because this is key going throughout this book. The essence of idolatry is the entertainments of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. In other words, any thought about God not revealed in the Bible is idolatry. Now think about some of your television programs and your books and your so-called Christian novels that are embellishing and imagining what Jesus is actually like when, he, when that is not revealed in Scripture. Be very careful with that because I think Tozer's right. Let's define holiness for a moment since we're going to talk about it so much. What, what does it mean to be holy? The word, when it comes to God, means to be separated from all sin. It means purity. It means blamelessness. There is no taint of corruption whatsoever in God. Uh, he is sinless. He is in, he, there's no impurity in his nature. And he's unlike 
anything else. The word holiness actually means uh, different. It means separate. It means that they're unholy. We are separated from, from everything and anything else he is that has ever been created. God is unlike anything else. The theologian calls it to say that he's the holy other. There's nothing like him. He's separate from all other things. Anything that is considered holy in this world is holy only because of his connection with the holy God. So think about that. We have such things as the holy Bible that we have in our hands. Or you have the holy land. You have the holy people. You have the holy city. Everything that is holy is holy only because it is connected with God himself who is holy. The angels cry out, as you know, three, uh, two different times. Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation chapter 4. They cry out two separate times, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. No other attribute of God is ever given that distinction. To be holy, mentioned holy three times. No other attribute. We never, we never hear in the Bible, love, love, love. You know, our goodness, goodness, goodness. But we hear holy, holy, holy three times. So at the very heart of the very essence of who God is, is holiness. And my friends, if you miss that, if you miss the holiness of God here, then you miss the whole understanding of who God really is. That's serious, isn't it? A number of years ago, David Wells wrote five books <laughs> challenging the church for some of its beliefs, some of the best books I've ever read, actually. His last one was, the not, was called The Courage to be Protestant. And he says this about uh, the fact that we're, there are some things missing in the church today. And he said this, what is, missing, it, it, what is missing is a due and weighty sense of the greatness and the holiness of God, a sense that will reach into our lives, wrench them around, lift our vision, fill our hearts, make us courageous for what is right, and over time leave behind its beautiful residue of Christ-like character. He was talking in the context that we have, we have really loved and, and de- developed a theology and, a, and our, our, our hymns, our new songs and so forth are all about what God does for us. His goodness, His love, and all these wonderful things that, that causes us to want to draw near to Him. That's all good. That's all right. But we must never forget that He is not like us, that He is wholly other, that He is truly the holy God. And when we, when we, don't, when we bring Him down to our level, then we have depreciated Him and misunderstood Him. And if Tozer is right, we've, we've committed idolatry. He is not like us. He's not like anything you've ever seen. You can't compare Him to anything. He is holy. He is separated from all other things. Chapter 9, if you'll back up to the very end of chapter 9, we have one example of the importance of holiness found in this book. We find at the end of chapter 9 that the Lord has just given them the uh, tabernacle. It's been set up. It's been dedicated. And His Spirit has come upon it. We see it in verse 22. It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands and towards the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came down before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now there is, a, there is the giving of the tabernacle and the priesthood is set up and, and we're off and running, right? The holiness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God is showcased in a powerful, powerful way. 
And then in the very next verse, everything falls apart. In the very next verse, we find the two sons of Aaron, the, 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 the other major priests, the ones that would replace him eventually, supposedly, do an awful thing. Look at verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now I want you to note that these two men, these two priests, didn't do anything awful. They didn't commit immorality. They didn't outwardly do some kind of a, a idolatrous thing. They did not blaspheme God. They did not worship false gods. What did they do? They simply offered something that God had not commanded. They did what God did not tell them to do. And in verse 3, Moses explains to Aaron why all this happened, why his sons died. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. There's your key, folks. Not only of the book of Leviticus, not only of the scriptures itself, but of your life and my life. To miss that point, that key ingredient found in this book that nobody wants to read, is to miss the very essence of the Christian life. And so I read it again. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. How a powerful, powerful verse of scripture. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, said, In the sinners in the hands of an angry God, is no longer appreciated much today. And perhaps it was over the top a bit, even when it was pre preached the first time. But... Um, the reason why it's so depreciated today, so misunderstood today, is because we do not think about the holiness of God. We think about all sorts of benefits that God brings us. But it's rare, I think, sadly, in most of our lives that we give much attention to the great holiness of God and the God that we worship and why we worship Him to begin with. He's holy. And therefore He deals with sin. But that causes a problem. Going back to chapter 11, verse 45 this time, it causes a problem. There's a, we are sinful. God is holy, but we're not. Verse 45, For I am the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. By the way, this verse of Scripture is, is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, as the foundation of why we are to be holy now. Not just an Old Testament thing. Is for us as well. And Peter quotes it in his first epistle. Chap go to chapter 18 with me. See, there's one little problem. God is holy. We, we don't have a, a big deal with that. And we're called to be holy. Okay, we accept that. But here's the problem. We're not very holy. We're not naturally holy. We, we, we often fail. We often sin. And so we find that this book repeatedly calls for Israel to live a life that's distinct from the people around them for that reason. But look at chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. And you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived. Nor are you do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. You shall, walk, you shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments, keep my statutes, to live according with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes, my judgments, by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. Now notice that last phrase. 
by which a man may live if he does them. How important is that? If you keep my commandment, you will live. You're not to be like the people in Egypt. You're not to be like the people in Canaan. You're to be absolutely different. If you keep my commands, you will live. That's great stuff, right? What's the problem? We can't do it. Go over to chapter 20 in verse 22. We see that these people in Israel or in Canaan had been walking away from the Lord for many years. Chapter 20, verse 22. The people going, and you might mark in your Bible, I'll give you this in a moment. Uh, in verse 22, it says this. You, therefore, uh, you are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations which I, which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. You might write in your Bible, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16 right there, because 600 years prior to this, the Lord says, I will drive these people out when the time is right. 600 years before. In other words, God gave them 600 more years to repent and to turn to him, and they didn't. And that's why Israel is coming into the land to spew them out. But Israel, is Israel any better? I mean, as we read the Old Testament and so forth together, as we look through numbers recently, we don't find Israel being particularly better. The problem is they're sinners too. Going over to Galatians chapter 3, we find that some of these verses, Galatians chapter 3 of the New Testament, that we find that Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 is actually quoted in both Romans and Galatians. And in Galatians 3, 11 through 13, listen to these words. Paul is building on what we're learning in Leviticus. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. That's the very verse we just read. He's quoting, he's quoting Leviticus. Man, you, if you, you, he who practices them shall live by them. But thou, the next verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The very law God was giving them in the book of uh, Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The very law God was giving them cursed us, condemned us. How so? There's nothing wrong with the law, right? It's God's law. It's perfect. It's, it's complete. It's holy. So what's wrong? The problem is us. And so Paul says here, look, the very law that God is giving us curses us. It condemns us. Why? Because we can't keep it. Yes, if you could keep it, Leviticus, if you could keep it, you would be fine, but you can't. You're constantly defying the law of God. And therefore, you're under the condemnation of God, and there's nothing you can do about it. The rabbis had a little story about a centipede. The centipede had 100 feet, and every one of them was sore. And therefore, he could hardly walk. 100 feet, he couldn't walk. So he hobbles over to the owl, the wise old owl. They're always wise in these stories, you know. He hobbles on over. He says, what can I do? i got 100 sore feet. And the eyes of the owl said, no problem, just learn to fly. <laughs> ah, there's our problem. If we could get our spiritual feet from being sore, if we could heal all those spiritual problems, no problem, but we can't. Something has to change. 
We have to be taught to soar with Christ, but we're not taught we're given that gift through Jesus Christ. We can never heal ourselves. He has to do that for us. The whole sacrificial system was the assumption that people would keep on sinning. If you look at chapter 6 sometime, you'll find that the, the fires never went out in the altar. There was constant burnt offerings for the people because they were constantly living in sin. So that's our second topic. Here it is. We therefore have a holy God and a sinful humanity. God calls us to be holy because He is holy, but we can't do it. Therefore, we're under the condemnation of God. We're under the curse of the law, and we're separated from God. And what can be done? That leads us to the third theme in the book as we go back to chapter 1 of Leviticus. The third major theme is that sinful humanity can approach God and worship God and live for God only through the means that God provides. We start with the sacrificial system. There are four very essential, important topics that are traced throughout the book. I'm just going to give you thumbnails here. We start with the sacrifices. The first seven chapters are the sacrifices. And there's eight different sacrifices in these chapters that were given. They're necessary for these people to have these sacrifices because of their continued sinning. In chapter 1, verse 9, we see the burnt offerings. We're not going to read much, but look at the burnt offerings. Uh, it says, Its entrails, however, and its legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a, smooth, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Burnt offerings were unique of all the eight offerings in that it was totally consumed, except for the skin, except for the hide. It was totally consumed. It was totally burnt up. It, was, it would be symbolic of Romans 12.1. Remember? One of our favorite verses in the New Testament. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present yourself a, uh, your bodies a living and holy sacrifice that hearkens back to the burnt offerings. When an when a, when a animal was burnt at the burnt offerings, it was consumed. There was nothing left. And the Lord calls on us to be consumed for Him. Then there's the grain offerings in chapter 2. There are the peace offerings in chapter 3. There are the sin offerings in chapter 4. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. If a person sins unintentionally in any of these things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits them, then there's a sin offering. Now the sin offering is a little different. The sin offering was for unintentional sins. Have you ever sinned unintentionally? I sin all the time intentionally. Right? It seems like I, so I, I'd like to say I didn't mean to sin. But I know better, for the most part, when I sin. So what does he mean by sin unintentionally? The word actually means with a high hand. It's the idea of rebelliousness or defiance. So any, uh, there was no offering presented here of these, uh, these offerings. None of them would deal with the sin of defiance of God, of absolute rebellion against God. None of them were for that. But the sin offering was for those who, were, who had sinned in other ways outside of rebellion. Then we have the grain offerings in chapter 6, and you might look at verse 5. This was actually when you did something against somebody else, and you had this grain offering, and, and it says in verse 5, you're to make restitution for it in full, and add one-fifth more. Wouldn't it be great if we kind of followed this in our legal system today? Somebody robs somebody, instead of just throwing them in jail and paying for their life there for the next 20 years, we make them pay back what they stole, plus 20%. That would be a little better plan, I think. 
Then we have wave offerings, ordination offerings, drink offerings. Drink offerings in chapter 6. Uh, also in Numbers, I mean. Uh, Paul himself called himself a drink offering twice. In the book of Philippians chapter 2 verse 17. And at the very end of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6. I'm being poured out, he says, as a drink offering. Well, you have no idea what that means. If you don't understand the drink offerings that are found in the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers. So I can't go through all these sacrifices, and you wouldn't want me to, but I'm going to give you two common features for all of them. Two things that are absolutely common and necessary. Chapter 1, verse 3, they're all sacrifices of, of unblemished types. There, there's no, you, you, don't, you never brought your sick animal to God. You never said, you know what, uh, Daisy over here is about to die anyway, so I'm just going to take her in and sacrifice her to God. Every sacrifice had to be perfected. It had to be without blemish. Chapter 1, verse 3. If his offerings is a burnt offering for the herd, he shall offer it as a male without defect. No defects. It's the best. It's the best of your flock. It's the best of your bank account. It's the best of your 401ks, whatever you got. It's the best. Not your leftovers. After you, after you did all your other stuff, and you got some stuff left over, you give it to God. It's not that. It's the best. It's the top. And that's what the, it was about in these things. So every one of these offerings were of our best, of their best. The best that they had. Here's the second thing. Verse 9, chapter 1. Drop down the very end, ending. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now this is easy to miss for some reason. But in this book, in this 14 times in this, in this book, it speaks of, of our offerings being pleasing or soothing to the Lord. And in the book of Numbers, there's even more cases of the same thing. Soothing offering, a, a, a pleasant aroma to the Lord. What does that tell us about worship? Uh, here's what it tells us. Worship is not about us. Worship is about God. How many times have, have you or maybe I or anybody else gone to church and said, ah, Kind of flat today. I didn't like the music. Didn't get much out of it. The, the pastor's sermon was really dull. He preached on Leviticus today. I didn't, I, I didn't get much out of it. So I'm setting you up for the afternoon lunch break. Uh, I didn't get much out of that. It really kind of dull. I didn't get, you know. How, how often do we do that when it comes to worship? It's, it's all about what we get out of it. It's all about us. How far astray we are from Scripture. The offerings were all about God. Every one of them were about God. It was a soothing offering to God. Our offering is for Him, not for us. It doesn't matter that much what you get out of it. What have you given to God in your offering? How, how do we miss that? Well, maybe because we don't read books like Leviticus that tells us every offering, every sacrifice was about Him and not about us. Let's go to the second theme, the Day of Atonement, chapter 16. I've already alluded to that during the uh, communion service, but let's take a look at this wonderful day. And again, I'll hit some highlights here. One day a year, only one day a year, the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies to do a special sacrifice. And uh, there's a lot of details here, so I'll just touch on them. First of all, Aaron had to, had to consecrate himself. He had to purify himself. Verse 3, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. Drop down to verse 6, and he shall make atonement for himself. Why that's important and why I'm bringing that out is because Hebrews will make a big deal about this. The book of Hebrews goes right back to this. The high priests had to be prepared first before they would come into the holy of holies. 
Then in verse 5, he would offer a ram. It says there, he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two milk goats for a sin offering, one ram for a burnt offering. He offers the ram as an offering. But then he casts lots over these two goats. Go down to verse 9. Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make a sin offering. So one of those goats was immediately sacrificed. That's typical in the system. So one of those goats died as an atonement for the sins of the people. Right? That's, that's nothing unusual. That happens all the way through here. But the other goat, as I already mentioned in the communion time, was different. And we find that the other goat was the scapegoat. And here we find that, that the, he placed his hand on the scapegoat. And that, that goat was sent forth into the wilderness. Look at chapter 16, verse 10. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Go back to verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities of a solitary land to a solitary land. And he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now this is the scapegoat. And as far as I can tell, and I've studied and tried to find and researched, and I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think so, this is the only sacrifice, the only system set up in all the Old Testament that on the day of the Lord in which sins even of the high hand, sins even of defiance and rebelliousness could be forgiven. That someone who had turned on God could now be forgiven because all the sins, all the iniquities were first atoned for on the altar and then sent into the wilderness to be gone forever. And if that is the case, what a beautiful picture of what the Lord has done for us. But I want you to see a problem. Go to Hebrews now. We'll come right back. But I want you to go back to Hebrews. We're coming here starting next week. But we're going to, and we won't get to chapter 10 for a long time, as you know. I will probably be in the home by the time I get to chapter 10. I'll just come out and preach it. Look at verse 1. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offered continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices couldn't get the job done. Why? Verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So all that sacrificial system, all that we're looking at here, only temporarily covered the sins of the people. But it didn't take them away. That remained for the sacrifice of Christ to come to take away those sins. And he did that once for all. Look at verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You might want to start underlining that if you're reading Hebrews. How often that comes up. Once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. What the priesthood could not do, what hundreds of thousands of sacrifices could never do, Jesus did once on the cross, once for all. 
There's no more need for sacrifices ever again. It's been done. We've been cleansed. Most of you, uh, I think, in this modern world, take a shower or a bath on a regular basis. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. And I know this last week, a few of you didn't have power, maybe water, to take a shower, and I'm glad that a few of you got it back before you came this morning. Uh, some of you may not. I don't know. I say all that to say this. Why do you take a shower on a regular basis or a bath? Because you get dirty, and you don't always smell the best. And so you take a bath to get clean, right? Time after time we do that. But what if we had a system in which we took one shower and we're done? Save a lot of time, wouldn't it? In the, in the symbolism of this book, time after time they were cleansed. Time after time, week after week, day after day, they were cleansed temporarily, but they always had to go back. But not anymore. Christ is paid forever for our sins. They're atoned forever. And Hebrews points that out. Let's go back to our passage very quickly, chapter 23 this time. Here's a third major theme in the book of, of Leviticus, and that is the Holy Feast. Chapter 23 of Leviticus, where we see a number of feasts that are lined out for us. With all this blood and all this sacrifice, we might get the idea that these people were always pious and without joy, and yet the Lord gives them up to seven feasts to enjoy, to enjoy Him, to enjoy one another, to be happy. But the difference between, you know, we, we have a lot of holidays today, right? It seems like every year we had a new holiday. The last I knew, the state gets off 37 days a year, right? Just for, I just made that up. I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's 13, okay, 13 days a year. So it's almost doubling what they got in the Old Testament. The difference between our holidays and their feasts is that our holidays are almost all secular, right? It celebrates something that we're happy about, some person maybe, or some event, 4th of July, we're celebrating our independence. We ought to celebrate our independence, but it's all pretty much what's happened for us, what's secular. All the, all the celebrations in Israel were, were about God. They were all wrapped about, around God. Uh, when they came together, they were joyful and excited and happy, but they were excited and happy because of the God that they were worshiping. And so there are a number of feasts that come up. In chapter 23, verses 4 to 5, we have the Passover celebration which is probably one of the best known. That's followed by the unleavened bread in verses 6 to 8. The first fruits, verses 9 to 14, kind of like a Thanksgiving type of, of holiday feast. Chapter 23, verses 15 to 22, we have Pentecost. We, we know that, also known as the Feast of Weeks. We know about Pentecost largely because of Acts chapter 2, which took place 50 days after Passover. Then there's the Feast of Trumpets in verses 23 to 25. Then the, the uh, Day of, the, of Atonement, that uh, nine days after the Feast of Trumpets. By the way, that's the only fast required in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. When you think about fasting, there's only one fast required. They sometimes did more, only one required, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Then there's the Feast of Booths. Look at verse 42, chapter 23. This is kind of a unique one. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had, that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So he wanted them to live for, at this festival in booths or like tents, kind of like tent camping, to remind them of what they went through in the wilderness. And you, you have recently tent camped 
know that that took a bit of a sacrifice, right, to do that. And so they were reminded what God brought them out of. So all these feasts do that. And, and the male, the, the healthy males were supposed to go to Jerusalem for three feasts a year. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, or booths. In chapter 25, one last theme I want to touch on, and this is, I think, is in some ways a key, and that is the, the year of Jubilee. In chapter 25, every 50, 50th year, a very unique event took place in Israel. It's called the year of Jubilee. It had three features. Look at verse 10 of 25. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. First of all, if you were in bondage, if you were, had, been, had become a slave somewhere in your life because of debt or whatever, you're now released at the year of jubilee. You could go back home. You're released. No more bondage. In this verse, also verse 13, look at verse 13. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. And so if you lost your property, your real estate, your family farm, throughout all these years because of bad management or bad luck or whatever, you were now, you were now returned to that property, and that property came back to you and your family. And then finally, the land was given rest. Verse 11, they, they were to give this land. They weren't to harvest. They weren't to plow. They were to let the land rest. And because the year before that had been a regular seven-year rest period, there was two years where they didn't harvest and they didn't plant. And people were saying, how could we live? God says, I'll take care of you. You believe me? You trust me? And I will take care of you. This is the year of Jubilee. The word Jubilee comes from the word ram, and so most likely it was a time when the ram's horn was blown. And when the ram horn was blown at that time, it, it meant the celebration had started. The year of Jubilee had begun. Could you imagine being in one of those situations where you were a slave or you'd lost the family farm 30 years ago uh, and all that? And the horn blows. Jubilee begins. You go home. You go home and you're set free. You get to start over again. And you get a year of rest to boot. What a, what a wonderful day that would be. In a real sense then, this is what Leviticus is all about. Starting over. I hear people talk about the great reset. Well folks, here's the great reset. They get reset. They get to, they get to start over. They get to go back to their land. They get to be set free from, from bondage. They're set free. They're set free from bondage. They're set, they're, they return to the land. They have a Sabbath rest. All that is given in the year of Jubilee. And that, again, points straight to what God has done for us. Folks, when we come to Jesus Christ, we have a great reset. We're born again, it says in the New Testament. We start over. We don't carry our sins with us. They're gone. Christ took them. And we're set free. It's our Jubilee. And so if you don't know Christ, you can start over right now with Jesus Christ. You can be born again, regenerated, a new creature in Christ. And let me say one word to those of you here who are Christians, which is most of you. Your jubilee can be there as well. Perhaps your life has been messed up. Perhaps you have sinned pretty badly. Perhaps you've been wandering around in your own spiritual wilderness for a long time. And yet the, the jubilee points to the fact that our lives can be reset. That Christ will forgive all of our sins if we confess them to him. That he'll give us a new start. He'll change our lives. He'll take us forward for him. That's our jubilee. 
as Christians. And so if we are, any of us here in that shape today, may we not give up, may we not get frantic, may we not say, woe is me, my life is ruined. Christ will not let your life be ruined. Christ will take your brokenness, your weakness, your sufferings and your sin, and he will take them to himself, and he'll set you free to live for him. What a great story. And the year of Jubilee was Israel's Jubilee. Christ is our Jubilee. Father, we thank you now for this truth of Leviticus. A hard book, difficult book. I hope we've outlined it a little better today so we understand it better. What a, what a message for us. Lord, we're sinners. We're worshiping a holy God that can only be worshipped because we've been set free. We've had our Jubilee in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. We give you praise. It's all about you. It's not about us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.